Hello, everyone, and uh, welcome to the Stoa Noah Conversations. Uh, my name is Massimo Piliucci. I'm a uh, professor of philosophy at the City College of New York. And here's how this is going to work. Um, we are going to have a conversation with uh, my guest, who I'll introduce in a minute. Um, and uh, we're going to talk for about 30, 35 minutes, and then we'll open it up for Q&A. If you have questions or comments, short comments, please. Uh, just raise your virtual hand, not your physical one, because I can't see everyone. There's too many people in the in the room. Um, so you're, you're and, and I will call on you uh, in the order of appearance of the little hand. Before we get started, uh, let me remind you that the next episode of Stoa Nova, Nova Conversations will take place on Thursday, July 9th. Um, so it's a different day and a different time, 6 p.m. Eastern time. I apologize to the uh, Europeans for that particular time, but I really had little choice because the topic will be stoic comedy and my guest will be Michael Connell. And Michael is going to join us live from Australia and that's pretty much as early as he uh, could get uh, get up that day. Um, so, so that's going to be at 6 p.m. on July 9th. If you wish to register for that event, go to meetup.com and look for Stoa Nova. And also, if you wish to watch past episodes of the Stoa Nova Conversations with my other guests or the solo episodes that I've done so far, you can go to YouTube and search for the channel under my full name. So today's topic is how to live like a Roman emperor and assorted areas of discussions within Stoicism. And of course, my guest is Don Robertson. I really don't think Don needs an introduction, but I'll do it anyway, uh, just out of you know, standardizing things. He's the author of six books, including How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, The Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius. He is a cognitive behavioral psychotherapist, writer, and trainer, specializing in the relationship between philosophy, psychology, and self-improvement. He's particularly known for his work on stoic philosophy and cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, Don was born in Air. Is that how you pronounce it? Mm -hmm. Scotland, um, as you can tell from in a minute from his lovely accent, uh, but now lives in, in Canada. Um, Don, welcome to the Stoa Nova Conversations. Hey, Massimo. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, get started. Um, I checked with you before, before time, and you, you, you seem not to mind if we talk about we started out with a fairly delicate uh, topic, which is death. In particular, uh, you have actually had a, uh, what looked like a, a close brush recently and, um, and uh, several more before. Uh, so if you don't mind telling us what happened and in particular how your stoic training and your stoic thinking actually helped you through this. Well, I might speak a little bit more generally. I don't want to say too much about um, sure. <laughs> my current health issues. but. The, yeah, something happened recently and it kind of made me think, oh shit, maybe I'm going to die. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, I, I've been in a number of the situations over the years. I guess I'd preface that by saying I had a conversation with somebody uh, who shall remain nameless uh, about our relationship with death. And one of the things that kind of emerged was, you know, how how people live in denial of death and then but then when it becomes a reality for them and then it's it's imminent it's a whole different ball game it's a different story so it's easy to be brave until it's imminent and then you everyone freaks out and they're confronted with death and stuff and i thought i don't think that's true um and i don't think it's true partly because i think most people have actually had 
some kind of brush with death. And then I, 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 that made me kind of question, and I thought, well, I don't know, what percentage of people by middle age of at some point in their life thought maybe they were going to die? Um, I hadn't, you know, I've never done a kind of head count, as it were. And I was giving a talk in Toronto in a bookstore, and I thought, you know, what the heck, I'm just going to do a show of hands thing. And I said, how many of you guys have at some point in your life thought maybe you were going to die? And either because you were in a dangerous situation or because of a health problem or something. And I think roughly two-thirds of the audience put up their hand, right? And I thought, yeah, like, I mean, it's not just me. It's not that unusual a thing. But then maybe there are a third of the audience that have never in their life so far thought that their life was in danger. And then I said to them, so was it what you thought it was going to be like? I mean, did you did you kind of freak out or, like, you know, what, what happened? Because I have another theory that uh, when people are confronted with a, uh, a situation like that, it depends on the circumstances, but often but not always, it's different than they thought it was going to be. And, and most of them said, yeah, it wasn't really how I thought it was going to be. And a lot of people said that they were more calm uh, and they were more focused on problem solving and, and thinking, what can I actually do about this? And sometimes when a threat is really imminent, you, you kind of almost don't have time to worry and, and feel anxious about it right you just kind of go into a different psychological mode of of problem solving you're kind of in the zone a bit and uh you know the, the fear is a strange thing i think it's a psychologically complex thing like many things in life um we talk about fear and anxiety we're lumping a bunch of things together that we normally can't be bothered separating out and distinguishing carefully um, but maybe sometimes we have to do that to tease out subtle distinctions. Um, I mean, you, there's a kind of sense in which we can be afraid and, and, and become very focused on things and want to escape them or want to solve them, but not really feel subjective experiences of anxiety. So I, I, what I would talk about more is maybe some of the weird things that happened to me in the, in the past, because I realized, I look at my little girl now and I think, geez, like, you know, she... As far as I know, like she's never put herself in any of these kind of situations that I ended up in when I was a when I was a kid. I don't know if it's just a generational thing. I've got a, I've got a photograph of me and my sister playing on a building site that uh, I kind of popped up, and I thought, yeah, that's you know when I was a kid, we did all sorts of dangerous things. We we're always climbing cliffs and playing in the woods and playing in the ocean and the river and stuff like that. And uh, I look back and, uh, yeah, I was in quite a lot of dangerous situations. So, so one of them was that I've been swept out to sea twice and swept wow. down a river once. Not all the way out, but like far enough out that I thought I was going to drown, right? Mm-hmm. So once I had to be rescued by a, a girl um, who was a few years older than me, which was incredibly embarrassing at the time because I was like, I think, 14 or something. And I had this, you know, real crush on this girl who was maybe a little <laughs> or something and so she was kind of swimming in the ocean and I was kind of getting a little bit further out you know chatting to her and stuff and then I realized I was just being swept out and I couldn't swim properly anymore and she had to rescue me which was terribly embarrassing at the time but it wasn't particular that wasn't particularly serious I don't think I was I felt that much in danger but another time I had a little rubber dinghy when I was a kid and I rode it out to sea and you know stupidly I was just having fun and then at the point at which I realized that I was in danger. It suddenly hit me. The waves were getting quite big and a wave flipped the dinghy over, which I realized immediately is quite dangerous because it's difficult to get 
the dinghy was now upside down and it's kind of difficult to get back in it. And uh, I managed somehow to kind of drag myself back in it and I rode like crazy back towards shore and by luck it didn't get flipped over again but that was just chance like it got completely flipped over once which is really lucky another big wave didn't come into it again um so at that point i thought yeah i'm in big trouble now when i was in the water and i was trying to clamber back in my dinghy i thought yeah this isn't looking too good right now but you know i was too focused on uh getting back to shore to particularly notice how anxious i was maybe feeling inside so Looking back on these experiences um, and a few others over the years, uh, I think they've definitely shaped my attitude towards life. And I, I noticed when I was at university, uh, when we were studying existentialism, that Heidegger goes on a lot about death. And uh, that made me interested in the, the idea. It was through Heidegger initially that I got the idea that philosophy might have something to say about coming to terms with our own mortality and it wasn't really until I finished university that I started to look at the the classics more I'd studied Plato and Aristotle in my undergraduate degree um, but it was only really after graduating that I began to study the Stoics and other Hellenistic philosophers and really look at what ancient philosophy has to say about our own relationship with death that sounds fascinating. By the way, the only the other fascinating thing is that I, I finally got my first spammers um, in the in the chat room. So oh, part cool. of the reason I was distracted, um, I was eliminating a few people, um, which gave me good good pleasure to just block people and remove them from things. Um, okay, so well, why don't why don't we talk a little bit more broadly, however, about what what you got in, why you got into stoicism, how did that happen, and and. Uh, um, how did that evolve over time? Because we all know you as the you know, very successful current author about, of, of Stoic books, but surely there's an origin story. There's things started somehow. Yeah, I mean, it's, I don't know. Where, where do I begin? It's a long story. Um, the, the honest story, uh, and I talk about it a little bit in my, my last book. And by the way, I only wrote about this because my editor kind of made me. So I'd, you know, I'd written my last book and I didn't have this whole preamble about how I got into philosophy and stuff. And then my publisher said, you need to say a little bit about how you got into this subject. So I did. But, um, you know, like when I was a, a, a teenager, my, my father passed away when I was about 13 or 14 years old. And uh, he was a Freemason. And so this is, I like this story because it's a little bit of an unusual story. Freemasonry is very popular in Scotland, or it was when I was a, a kid anyway, and in particularly in my hometown, because it's the birthplace of Robert Burns, the National Bard, and Robert Burns was famously, to Scottish people at least, uh, a master mason. And so most of my friend's fathers were Freemasons. And it's a secret thing, I didn't know that much about it. But when my father died, he didn't leave that much behind, uh, except a bunch of books on Freemasonry. So I read them. And I couldn't make any sense out of them at all. But there were a lot of weird references to religious and philosophical symbolism and Pythagoras and Plato and the cardinal virtues and these kind of things came into it somehow. So I knew that my father had this philosophy of life that was a kind of hybrid of Christianity and some Hellenistic philosophical influences and that it was a kind of virtue ethic. And... Uh, then I started to read books about religion and philosophy and, and at the back of my mind, I think I was looking for something that was a little bit like what my father got from Freemasonry, which was a kind of moral 
guide to life and the philosophy of life, a virtue ethic. And uh, then I went to university and I got really kind of quite frustrated. I studied philosophy at Aberdeen because uh, I loved philosophy, but I really didn't feel that it kind of answered my main question, which is, you know, how can I live a more meaningful and, and fulfilling life, you know? And then after I graduated, I thought existentialism seemed to come closest and Wittgenstein, I was quite lucky as an undergraduate because I got to study Wittgenstein and Heidegger um, and those are philosophers that, that often aren't, aren't really given that much emphasis on a lot of undergraduate programs, but we had lecturers that were really into them, so we learned a lot about Wittgenstein and Heidegger. And both of those philosophers had their own approaches to using philosophy as a kind of psychological tool or as a way of life, but it still seemed a bit obscure to me. Uh, there are attempts to combine those approaches with therapy. And then when I did my master's degree at Sheffield, I studied in an interdisciplinary center for philosophy and psychotherapy at Sheffield University. And we were trying to combine it. So actually my master's uh, dissertation is on Jean-Paul Sartre and huh. uh, existentialism, right? And psychoanalysis. Like, so I was trying to combine existentialism and, and psychoanalytic therapy at that time. And I, I like a, a lot of people, you know, I got really deep into something and kind of talked myself out of it. I remember some of my friends that were doing theology degrees telling me that, you know, the best way to become an atheist is to do a, a theology degree. You kind of get so immersed that <laughs> you talk yourself out of it. And I, I got, that was what I was like with existentialism. I got so deep into psychoanalysis and existentialism that I totally talked myself out of it. And then I started casting around for some kind of alternative. And as a teenager, I was really into Gnostic uh, Christianity. I was kind of fascinated by the Gnostics because I was reading a lot of world religions. And uh, I, I decided to go back and look at Gnosticism. Gnosticism is very steeped in Neoplatonism. So I read uh, a book about Plotinus by Pierre Hadot. And I thought, this is really awesome. Um, and he's talking about philosophy as a, it's like Buddhism or something. It's like a philosophical way of life. And then I, I read Pierre Hadot's other books. And I was particularly interested in what he had to say about Stoicism. And then the light went on for me and I realized that Stoicism was the philosophical influence for cognitive therapy, which I was also getting into at the time. And then suddenly I had almost like an epiphany in a way and everything just suddenly came together for me. And I, I realized that Stoicism and cognitive therapy fitted together. And that was around about, I can't even remember exactly, but it was roughly 1998. And then we are, to my surprise, Massimo, I'm still banging on about it now. <laughs> it was a long time ago. And normally, you know, you get into things and then you move on to the next thing. And I got into this thing and I, I stayed into it. And I'm like, yeah, like this, I guess, was what I was looking for. Yeah, it's it's kind of interesting. I mean, you just mentioned, you know, things all of a sudden click and, you know, come together. Um, my my in, initial interest in stoicism was way back when I was in high school, but I didn't realize that that's what it was. So I, you know, I studied Latin, so I translated Seneca, and I thought oh, this is this is a cool guy, and it's an interesting thing. But it never occurred to me that he was actually talking about a philosophy of life. I I had no even not even a conception of what that was. And then in college, I read because everybody that I knew was reading it, Marcus Aurelius. And, and it's not like I actually put the two together. I said, oh yeah, this, this guy's the same, he's doing the same thing. But then, you know, many, many years passed before 
uh, it actually all clicked together when I finally heard of Epictetus. And I say, wait a minute, these guys are actually talking about the same thing. There is, there is a connection here. And, uh, and yeah, it really did feel like a, like a clicking uh, all, of, all of a sudden. Now, speaking of Marcus Aurelius, uh, so obviously you've been spending quite a bit of time recently about, on, on Marcus. You just wrote a book about him, and I think that your next project is also on, on Marcus. Uh, what is it that attracts you in particular to, to his brand of Stoicism? Because I, the way I think about it is that the three big Roman Stoics, um, only one of whom actually was Roman, Marcus. But um, the three big Roman Stoics have, are fascinating because they have very distinct styles of doing Stoicism. They, they write differently. They, they, what we can glean from, uh, about their personality and their biographies is very different. And so I find them fascinating for different reasons. Uh, as you probably know, Epictetus is the one that I actually fell in love with. That doesn't mean that I don't appreciate very much the other two. But so, is that something that happened to you with Marcus? There's, there's something about Marcus that speaks to you. I think the Stoic that I, gosh, I kind of got interested in, in the three main ones for different reasons. You know, I remember being really into Seneca because I was kind of blown away by how contemporary some of his observations seemed. You know, and I, I would say you know, you could take this passage out of Seneca and put it in a book on CBT, and and nobody would know the difference, right? Like they really wouldn't, like they, they'd think it had been written yesterday or something. And I, I really liked um, Epictetus because he reminded me a lot of Albert Ellis and also a, a less well-known uh, psychotherapist called Andrew Salter who had this kind of quite abrasive kind of uh, uh, challenging style that, that I found kind of refreshing and sort of interesting. And then Marcus, um, I don't know what attracts me to Marcus. He was, a, you know, he seemed to be, um, I like I was more interested in his style, aphoristic style of writing kind of grabbed me. I, I like these little kind of nuggets of wisdom uh, and the way that he'd, uh, he styled his writing. But the, the reason that I ended up writing about Marcus um, is that I wanted to write a book that, well, basically, like my publisher said to me, hey, Donald, do you want to write a book about stoicism? And I said, I've already done that. I, and there are loads of books about Stoicism. Um, and they said, we think you should write a kind of introductory guide to Stoicism as a way of life. And I was like, yeah, I've already written that. Like, <laughs> and I thought, well, maybe there's a yes and no answer to this. Like, maybe I can kind of do it, but do it different. Um, and I, so I thought, how can, how can I do this but not do it? And I thought, well, I'll write What if I write a book about a famous Stoic and focus on their life and their personality? Because that's not really been done. It's not really been approached from that angle um and then i you know i was telling my daughter lots of stories and anecdotes and i thought this is a good way to to teach stoicism i also realized from having talked to zillions of people over the years about stoicism that just it struck me as a trainer i used to teach psychotherapists that you can argue till you're blue in the face about certain things and cite evidence and give logical arguments. But often when you're in a classroom, the thing that ends a discussion is is a kind of rhetorical point, like just or just kind of pointing to an example or something. And I found that talking about stoicism. So people would say, well, the Stoics, stoicism is passive. Like you're accepting things. So that would mean you wouldn't do anything. If someone came up and punched you in the face, you would just kind of brush it off. And, you know, you, you would be very passive in terms of political issues and so on. And you could argue till you're blue in your, the face about that as a misinterpretation of stoicism. Or you can just go, well, here's one I made earlier, right? Like here's, a, here's an example. Here's Marcus Aurelius. Did he just sit around and do nothing? No, he was a workaholic. 
right? <laughs> and he, he put himself in the front line in danger. Like, he's like the opposite of what you guys think a, a, a Stoic would be like. And so that tends to at least make people stop and think that maybe they're misinterpreting the philosophy. And then the idea also that Stoics would be unemotional and uncaring and cold-hearted and all this. Um, again, if you point towards living examples of ancient Stoics, you go, well, that's not what they were actually like in practice. It makes them at least then... Then it, I guess it then leads on into saying, well, why does that... Why is that not consistent with philosophy? Maybe you need to reappraise your interpretation of the philosophy. And so I, I thought, well, let's look at an example of a living Stoic. And I thought at first maybe we could do Zeno. And I thought, well, we don't really know as much about him. And I thought, well, the, the Stoic, it's not the first Stoic that we know the most about. It's the last Stoic of antiquity and the last famous Stoic of antiquity. And that, which happens to be Marcus Aurelius. And he was kind of a big deal back in the day. So yeah. <laughs> we, we have several, I mean, the, the weird thing is, Massimo, like some of the people, when they reviewed my book, like every so often I get a review and people go, well, we can't, I quite like this book, but why did you make up all these stories about Marcus Aurelius? And because people don't think that we know anything about him. And right. they just assume that we don't. But we have three major surviving histories of his reign, and Herodian, Cassius Dio, and the Historia Augusta. And then we have a bunch of other scattered references and other texts. We have a bunch of biographical stuff by him in the meditations at the beginning, mainly where he talks about his teachers and his family. And then there's like a bunch of kind of archaeological evidence and, and things like that from coins and inscriptions and so on. So we, we know quite a lot about Mark. We know way more about Marcus Aurelius than we do about any other Stoic. Right. Yeah. It was a big deal back in the day. And so I thought, well, I have to do Marcus then because he's an easy option. And uh, I like, he, he's a very articulate, right? I mean, people don't think about this much, but um, Mark, Marcus uh, was, uh, I mean, Seneca was one of the finest writers of antiquity. Um, but Marcus, not often celebrated as a writer, spent most of his life studying Greek and Latin rhetoric. And it's no coincidence that people find his aphorisms memorable because, so especially if you look at his private correspondence with Fronto, you can see he's constantly training in rhetoric and practicing it. So, you know, he, he took it very seriously. He was, uh, and apparently his speeches were, were very polished as well. So Marcus is appealing because he's a good writer as well, I think. People remember some of the things he's saying because he's put a lot of effort himself into finding the right words to express his ideas. Yeah, that makes, makes perfect sense. Now, I want to go, if you don't mind, a little bit more in detail in, in some parts of your, of your book. In, in chapter three, I believe, um, you talk about the importance of a mentor, um, a word that, as you point out, um, is actually interesting because it comes from um, uh, uh, one of the friends of Odysseus, and it, it is this friend that Athena impersonates in order to give advice to Telemachus, who is Odysseus' son. So, so the word mentor actually was a, you know, the name of somebody's name. Um, what is the role of mentorship in Stoicism? And, and do you think modern Stoics should, should go back to do more mentorship, more, uh, you know, more of that sort of stuff, or, or what? <laughs> I've got a lot to say about this, so but I'll try okay. and keep it kind of concise. Um, from a lot of different perspectives as well. I 
think mentorship is integral to ancient Stoicism and it's one of the main things that's kind of neglected. We think we know Stoicism, but we have a tiny fragment of the literature, first of all. And we don't really kind of see... I mean, if obviously, if we went back in time and we saw the ancient Stoics going about their daily business, I think we would come away with a bit of a different impression about what it meant to be a Stoic in the ancient world. We've got a fairly good idea from studying the writings closely. But we, I mean, we only have a very small sample of the, the writings, you know, and they're from, they're from pretty late on as well. So I think uh, I think mentoring is important. I think that partly because they tell us it is. Um, we're told Seneca um, says, for example, you, that you know the best way to learn philosophy is by being in the presence of somebody who's who's wise and virtuous. And uh, you know Cleanthes and the other early Stoics learned so much because they got to hang around with Zeno. And it was his right. company that, that was one of the main things that taught them. And, and the Stoic writings are kind of a, a, a sort of poor man substitute for that in a way, you know, which is, I don't think that's that controversial an idea. I mean, I think the writings serve a purpose, the lectures serve a purpose, um, but also, you know, being able to see living examples. And so I guess to refer back to what we were just saying a moment ago, one of the reasons I, I wrote that book in the way that I did and focused on the, you know, the, the last famous Stoic was that, it brings us a little bit closer to being able to imagine being in the presence of a living Stoic if we start to at least talk a little bit more about their personality and their actions and their life rather than just kind of looking at the text in, a, in an abstract way, as it were, detached from the, the way that they actually lived. So I thought, maybe, you know, we can't bring Marcus back to life. We can't clone him. But maybe we could talk a little bit more about what he was actually like as a person and as a as a ruler. Now, mentoring today, uh, having said that I think it's really important, now I'm going to kind of go in the opposite direction and say I think it's also highly problematic. And I say that partly based on my experience over the years of seeing many abortive attempts by people to institute some kind of non-clinical alternative to psychotherapy like uh, life coaching, which is quite successful, is nevertheless, uh, nevertheless has certain problems associated with it. Philosophical counselling, though, or philosophical practice, as it's known, Lou Marinov and all these kind of guys, yep. I was involved. The reason I know Tim LeBon, incidentally, who's another member of our, our team, is right. that I, I knew Tim, and I have a photograph, actually, from years and years and years ago, from about 1999, I think, when I was, we were on the committee together of the Society for Philosophical Practice. That, that was how I first uh, became friends with Tim LeBon. And both of us gravitated more towards Stoicism over the years because philosoph the philosophical counselling, philosophical practising movement never really kind of seemed to, to get off the ground. And that was partly because the emphasis on mentoring and counselling was very attractive to people, but it quickly seemed to become very problematic to them as well. Uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. And one, the, the two main reasons were um, the problem of psychopathology and the problem of not having a clear practical methodology. Like, yeah, right. So uh, just from experience, the approximately 25% of people currently meet or have recently met diagnostic criteria for some kind of psychiatric condition, right? The point prevalence, so the, the lifetime prevalence 
of mental health problems in the United States, uh, based on the largest ever prevalence study, is just over 50%, right? So mental health, diagnosable mental health problems, like, of which there are many varied types, are yeah. very, very common. If you get on a bus, there's a pretty good chance, you know, that a quarter of the people on the bus with you, you might be sitting next to a sociopath, you know, the woman behind you might have OCD, there's probably a couple of people with clinical depression, right? So oh, that, that explains a lot of, <laughs> about life in New York. You know? Public transport and stuff, right? <laughs> now, now I get it. Yep, yep, yeah. Yep. So like, uh, this is a thing, right? It's the, it's the, the reality of the, the demographic. And so like, when you, you try and do mentoring and counseling and people tend to then start talking about personal psychological problems, um, what I've found is over and over again that people are doing it come back and say, I've run into a problem with this client because they're talking about stuff that I can't handle. I've heard that a million times, right? And it'll be because they're talking about depression or suicidal or they've got kind of intense symptoms like OCD type symptoms or something like that, right? And so it's, it's tricky. It's, it, it raises a number of problems, ethical issues, practical problems. And I don't know what the solution is to that. I feel like there should be one. But I haven't, in my own mind, kind of quite figured out what the, what the way around that yeah. is. But well, it's so good for life coaches as well, incidentally. It is. No, it is. Uh, absolutely. Um, so I've actually tried also the, the philosophical counseling uh, over the years on and off, um, as, in, uh, you know, as, a, as in I did a, take a course with the APPA and stuff like that. And um, the most successful uh, experiences that I've had is when I actually decided, okay, I'm not just going to do genetic philosophical cancer. I'm just going to use stoic, the stoic framework as a type of counseling and, you know, mentorship. And that actually works in my experience at least uh, better precisely because of what you were saying. That is, it is a, there is a method, there is a framework there as opposed to, Oh, tell me like, what's going on and I'll make up some kind and I'll fit you with some kind of philosophy or another. That's my second problem. You know, so when we were doing the philosophical, like there were people that I went to, were into Heidegger, and again, from my own experience of studying Heidegger and, and Sartre and trying to apply it myself, I just felt it was, you know, like people that study Heidegger all have completely different ideas about what he's trying to say anyway, right? Yeah. <laughs> and so I thought, how the hell do you actually apply this in, in, in practice? And, you know, I also worry about any theory. You get this in psychoanalytic therapy. I think it was Klein, or no, it was Winnicott, one of these psychoanalysts who said the theory's for the therapist, not for the client. And I always had a problem with that. Mm -hmm. You know, I thought there's something weird about studying a theory and then never mentioning any of it to your client. Um, whereas in cognitive therapy, it's different. The, the, the theory, um, you know, it's difficult to explain some of the theories to clients, but there's always a case, what we call case conceptualization. So there's another step whereby we have a simplified version of the, like in Albert Ellis has this thing called the ABC model. So it's like, yep. It's meant to be simplistic. This is, this is the kiddies version of the cognitive theory of emotion. Like, so in reality, it's a little bit more complex than that, but we can simplify it down to this level and explain it to any random client that walks through the door. You know, we don't have to start talking to them about loads of research and stuff like that and, and get lost in the weeds. So well, cognitive therapy had this other approach that on the one hand, the theory might be complicated, but you can make it simple enough that you could share it with the client. My, and talk to them about the presuppositions that you're making and the approach that you're taking and, and see if you can get their consent to that, you know, because they might say, well, I don't agree with that. Why? And then at least you can, you can bring it out into the open and discuss it. So it seemed more um, collaborative in that respect to me than some of the other 
psychotherapeutic right. approaches. So, but, so there is, there is a sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was, I was going to say, like, first of all, I agree that stoicism seems somehow to offer an opportunity, and I think you wanted to ask me about the future as well. And so, just to kind of jump ahead a little bit, I yeah. think we we're not there yet, but we could get there with stoicism. That we could maybe work on stoicism to develop what would be like a, case, a kind of case conceptualization in in cognitive therapy. So, I kind of pared down version that we could teach somebody in half an hour um, yeah. and that would be consistent with stoic philosophy but simplified enough that you wouldn't get lost in, in the weeds and people could actually start putting it into practice yeah uh, that's right i mean it, it, when i think about mentorship within the stoic framework um you, you know i do think about it in a different way from from say philosophical counseling or something like that um, because it isn't like somebody has a problem and it comes to you as a, as a mentor. What the idea is more that somebody is um, a little earlier on in the, in the development of the study of the philosophy and the practice of the philosophy. And so uh, needs a little bit of, a, a little bit of help. I mean, um, in fact, a successful example of this is my friend um, and, and co-author co Greg Lopez, who here in New York runs a particular group with a small number of people uh, you know, it's, it's a close group. Every year they start start fresh, and it's essentially a mentorship program. Uh, but it's very few people. They meet regularly. They're committed to you know talking to each other, etc., etc. And then sort of Greg uh, has the, these 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 role of you know the person who is more advanced than the other ones, but he's not a sage or you know anything like that. And it's certainly not he's not a, a therapist or anything like that. So I think that model might work um, if if done properly. That would work, but it's then a different ball game from coaching because yep. you wouldn't be paid for it. Like, right. So again, that, that you'd have to be doing it on a kind of peer. I hate. I'm hesitant to say this because I know, like some people, I know people will jump all over this from based on past experience. But the model that it would remind me of the most is Alcoholics Anonymous, like where there's a peer support group, or there are also peer support groups for people with mental health problems and things like that. And I, I, you're alluding, I think, to this passage in Seneca where he says, I'm like a patient in the next bed rather yeah. than being a physician or a doctor. I think, and I'm speculating about this, that that's not just something Seneca's pulled out of thin air, but I feel that it's quite plausible that Zeno maybe said that or that earlier Stoics would have said the same thing. And that might explain why Stoicism is called Stoicism and not Zenonianism or however you pronounce that. Like, right. <laughs> like, thank, thank goodness it's not. Like, yes. Thank, thank Zeus, that's not the case. Right. Yeah. Thank Zeus, we're not called Zenonians, <laughs> right. But it, the Epicureans are, and the Pythagoreans are, and the Platonists, and so on. So it, it didn't become a personality cult. And I, I think that's because Zeno probably said that he wasn't a perfect sage. We know he said that, actually. And so it occurs to me that what Seneca says about this kind of mentoring relationship with Lasilius is 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 probably something that the early Stoics may have well said. Yeah. And, I, you know, I think so. There could be a kind of peer support model for people that have been doing it a bit longer. Um, we Also, I should say, Stoic mindfulness and resilience training is an attempt to try and design what we would call protocol for research purposes, like a, a set of techniques and concepts and steps that are simple enough that they could be used for skills training and yet recognizably stoic enough 
the and the other criterion we had for that was that people would look at SMRT psychologists would look at it and they would think oh yeah that looks plausible it looks like it might potentially be worth researching and I think like we we, we nailed that as well that when I, we've shown it to researchers and stuff they went yeah that looks like it should work like mm -hmm. it looks like it would be worth doing research on and it, it is also different enough from CBT that you you wouldn't be accused of doing what researchers call a purple hat therapy like which is when you take a therapy that we already know works and do it but wearing a purple hat or Mickey Mouse ears or something, right? So, <laughs> like, the, the, this is a controversy. So, I, I'm sensitive to the fact that people might say this is a purple hat version of CBT. So, you're just doing CBT but calling it something else. So, it's CBT, but you also read Marcus Aurelius. So, of course, that's going to work. Like, but it, it doesn't work because of the stoic stuff, it works because of stuff that we already do in CBT. So, in SMRT for research purposes, like we had to kind of go, well, well, let's focus on aspects of this that aren't commonly focused on in CBT. So right. it would be plausible to psychologists, but different enough and also be simple enough that people could do it repetitively for four weeks. And uh, it, then you'd start to kick into uh, habit formation and skills training and stuff. And so I'm, I'm hopeful in the future that, that we can make start talking about what we're doing with research protocols and how that might compare to protocols that are developed for peer support and mentoring. That makes sense. Um, I, I'm going to ask you a question that is, I think, related to what we've been just been discussing in the last few minutes. I'm going to remind people that in a few minutes, I will try to take questions. We may still have a troll among us, which, of course, will be immediately muted and kicked out. So, you know, if you want to give it a try, go ahead. Um, but it's not going to do you much good. Um, okay, so back to you. <laughs> Uh, done. So now it, there is a concept in Stoicism of, you know, the mentor par excellence, which is the sage, mm -hmm. right? So what, what do we make of this? What do we, what do we do with the sage? What do we do with the sage, the sophos? <laughs> like, well, he doesn't exist. He's as rare as the Ethiopian phoenix, we're told. Right. <laughs> which I, I supposedly was born every 500 years, but I don't know if that's what they, they meant or not. Um, I think of the sage, as Pierre Hadot says, as being a kind of hypothetical ideal. And actually, what I'd like to say about the sage is that I think of it very much as like when we talk about a utopian society. So it's useful to have a utopian vision. It's kind of interesting. It's a sort of thought experiment in a way. And I actually also think that Zeno's Republic is a utopian-like text. And that the stoic concept of the sage is kind of really maybe inseparable or certainly closely intertwined with the idea of a utopian stoic republic a bit like plato's republic but in some ways a critique of it um and so it's kind of a thought experiment to me in a way and i think it's very useful uh to have that but there are also there are limitations i mean i'll say something that i wouldn't normally say maybe in in the, that might be of value because it comes from research in psychology um there's a tendency that in psychology we distinguish between coping models and mastery models in jargon. And so a mastery model is somebody who's perfect, basically. So a mastery model of public speaking would be the world's greatest public speaker, right? Yeah. And a coping model would be somebody who's making progress. A uh, coping model is somebody who's experienced problems and setbacks, but they've managed to overcome them, right? And we know that people gravitate towards mastery models and they may have some value in certain ways. It gives you an idea of what you're heading towards, but they're also psychologically quite counterproductive, particularly for certain types of individuals. People with social anxiety, we know, 
tend to have perfectionistic standards. And very often, from clinical experience, people with social anxiety, just to pick one example, often compare them to, oh, they've got a little bit like Tony Robbins, and they set this kind of unrealistic ideal, fail to meet it, and then feel bad about themselves. Depressed clients also do that, but in a slightly different way. They set unachievable mastery-related goals and then feel bad because they're constantly failing to reach them. Whereas what would be, what seem, what we know is healthier, what we know tends to be more beneficial for people is to focus in, on coping models. So, and that comes out in actually your peer support group more, right? So where yeah. are you, a good, a, my favorite example of coping modeling is if you have a bunch of people who have chronic pain and that works really well in groups because you, you can sit around, if you can stop them kind of complaining about their pain too much and stuff and focus more on solutions, then you'll have people in the group saying, you know, I've got, you know, these terrible problems I've been coping with, I have difficulty sleeping and stuff, and this is how I've learned to overcome it to some extent. And then other people in the group will model that. They'll feel like credible um, authorities because they've struggled and because they encounter setback and they manage to overcome it. So we know that that works really well, whereas particularly if you if you try to um, talk to people who have got a real problem like, like chronic pain in a kind of patronizing way and, you know, talk to them about the Stoic Sage and, and how he's kind of uh, aloof from pain and stuff like that, they, they'll just get annoyed with you, basically, <laughs> often and be quite frustrated with that because they feel like that, that it's a, such a distant goal for them. Yeah. Um, so coping models, one call, one of my, this isn't really a criticism of stoicism, but some people say, what would you do differently? I say, if I could go back in time and sit down and talk to Marcus Aurelius, I'd say, Marcus, coping models are more psychologically beneficial than mastery models. So like, do you not think it would be more helpful to focus on them rather than just on the sage so much? Although the, say, the focusing on the sage also serves a, a purpose. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, let's open up to, for discussion cautiously, as I said. Um, and let's see. The first person in uh, line is Joseph. Uh, you are. You can go for it. Oh, thank you. Thank you both for everything that you are making stoicism accessible to so many people. Um, I can speak personally that it has helped me, and I am eternally grateful for the Handbook of New Stoics and SMRT. Um, my question is, can you speak to the importance and the healing power that is combined stoicism with meditation and how it overcomes, helps people overcome people uh, in desperate situations sometimes? And how would you go about speaking to someone about that? So there's kind of two Thank you. questions there, like stoicism and its relationship with meditation. Like I originally... Um, I was very interested in Buddhism and I studied history of Indian religion and Buddhism at university and I was a practicing Buddhist, I was a member of the Buddhist society and just to kind of refer back briefly, Massimo said, how did you get into Stoicism? I partly got into Stoicism because it offered, it seemed to me to offer a Western alternative to Buddhism. I saw, I perceived in, in Stoicism a bunch of meditative practices and I, particularly from reading Hado, who, who talks about the spiritual exercises in Stoicism, I thought this is like Buddhism, but it's different, and it meshes with the Socratic study uh, philosophy that I've been studying. So 
I think when we talk about this, there's some confusion because people use the word meditation to mean a variety of different things. Uh, I spent some time studying the philosophy and psychology of meditation at university. So I go into it with the assumption that meditation is quite a broad category and that even in Eastern traditions, it refers to, to quite a diverse bunch of different things. Although sometimes I meet people today who think of meditation as mainly referring to Buddhist mindfulness practice. Really, it's, I think of it as being a much broader term. So I have no problem saying that the view from above is a meditation technique, for example. It seems to me that the, the, the term is easily flexible enough to, to encompass contemplative practices, if you like. But, you know, that's terminology. It's not a big deal. So I, it, it, when you ask me about meditation, I guess I, I'm not sure whether you're kind of mean that term in a broad sense or a more narrow sense, but I would refer to all of those contemplative practices that Hado talks about as essentially, most of them anyway, as being types of meditation technique. How can Stoicism help people in a, a crisis, I think, is the other part of your question. I mean, the first of all, the main, people ask me about the pandemic, and I say, look, the main thing Stoicism would tell you about a pandemic is that you should prepare for it in advance. You know, it's kind of, it, it, you know, like the first thing. And Stoicism is mainly, uh, from a psychological point of view, a preventative approach. Um, so the Stoics are always premeditating. The Stoics would be premeditating a pandemic. And also they would say that the current pandemic is a terrible thing, but it's also trivial compared to how bad this could have been. If this virus had been like Ebola, like, then we would be facing a much, much more serious uh, problem worldwide. And there will be other pandemics in the future. Like, that will quite possibly have a much higher fatality rate than even the awful one that we're currently facing. So in some respects, we've actually been lucky because it gives us an opportunity to prepare ourselves for something much more dangerous coming down the, the pipe in the future. Although, you know, the death toll from this is, is, is bad enough as it is. But the Stoics would say the pandemic also gives us an opportunity to mentally prepare for, more, for other pandemics in the future or, or more serious problems or threats that we might face in the future. And as an aside, by the way, all the stuff that the Stoics say about exile very much reminds me of the problems that people say they have dealing with lockdown, just right. to make a little association. So I, I think a lot of what the Stoics want to teach is how to prepare in advance for a catastrophe, but they do also say things that are what I would call remedial or therapeutic about people that are already in the throes of catastrophe. For example, the consolation literature is addressed to people who are already suffering from grief and trying to deal with that. So that's adopting a more remedial or therapeutic stance. And the Stoics say a whole bunch of things, but one of the main things that they'll say to people is to focus on the transience of the situation and to broaden their temporal perspective. So to do something that kind of resembles a view from above. And then as we know, these stock Stoic things about separating our value judgments from external events and distinguishing between what's under our control and what isn't. But the, maybe the, the, the kind of emergency technique, the first and quickest technique, is to, to change our perspective on situations, to, to broaden uh, them by doing something like the view from above. But then there's like a whole bunch of other things that Stoics could do. Yeah, I, I, I actually, I thought the, your point about, you know, Stoicism, like 
really any philosophy of life is a preventative uh, thing, not, not something that can be used on, on the spot at the moment without any preparation whatsoever. Just a few days, I read yet another article uh, somewhere that was critical of, uh, of using ancient philosophies for modern living and all that sort of stuff, right? And uh, the, the, the writer couched one of his objections in this term. He said, you know, I, uh, one of my students one day came in at the end of the semester and told me, uh, that she couldn't turn in uh, her final because, and she and she uh, had a medical certificate, and she said, you know, I, I just been diagnosed with a brain tumor. And he said, you know, what was he going to do? Quote Epictetus to her or something like that. Well, no, of course not. That would have been a terrible idea to quote Epictetus. Um, however, I would wager that if that student had in fact been schooled in the stoic way of things and had been, you know, thinking and meditating about this stuff, she would have probably found benefit in quoting herself Epictetus or in going going back and reading Epictetus. So, yeah, there's sometimes this this unreasonable notion that uh, philosophy of life is going to be, you know, you can pull it out of the, of the hat at the, at the last moment with no preparation whatsoever and say, oh, of course yeah. it's not going to work. No kidding. Like a life hack type thing or whatever. I, too, I right. want to say two things in response to that. Like one is, again, the, the consolation literature. You can see the Stoics talking to people who aren't Stoics, um, but they modify what they're saying and they kind of adapt it to the needs of the person that they're talking right. to. So it's interesting to look at that. And then the other thing I'd say, but I have to say in response to what you, you said, I agree with what you're saying. However, like as it happens, cognitive therapists for a long time actually did quote Epictetus like, <laughs> to a lot of their clients because Albert Ellis used to, and the only thing he'd ever really quote is it's not things that upset us, but our opinions about them. So every cognitive therapist has that in their mind as a kind of cliche, but they did until quite recently anyway. And they would often teach it to clients and, and quote it to them. But other than that, they would normally, you know, obviously yeah. it'd be tricky to let yeah. them on the stoicism. All right, let's go to the next question, which is by Scott. Scott, go for it. Thank you, Massimo, and good to see you again, Donald. Hey, Scott. Uh, as someone who is a life coach whose uh, work is informed and inspired by my long study of Marcus Aurelius and also um, by your book, uh, well, both The Art of Happiness and the, the um, book on how to think like a Roman emperor, I'm wondering if you could speak to the role of, uh, of Socratic inquiry in terms of helping people arrive at their own truth and their own solutions to problems and the idea of just bearing witness as opposed to um, being uh, somebody that's advising or serving as a role model. And I may have to take part of the answer in recording because I have a coaching call at five o'clock. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be quick. Um, but yeah, like, so like, there are a bunch of things I could say, though. I am one of the people who believe that Stoicism is, in a sense, a Socratic school of philosophy. And Epictetus probably agrees with me. I, I'm not sure that, that, that Seneca puts as much emphasis on that. But I very much see Stoicism as, as being in the Socratic tradition. And we see Epictetus, as A. Long talks about, using the Socratic method of questioning, but only a little bit with uh, some of his interlocutors. Um, Socratic questioning today, or a kind of bastardized version of it, is used in cognitive therapy. Cognitive therapists talk all the time about Socratic questioning, and they've got like most of them have got no idea why they call it that. Like it's just the term that they use. It's used in teaching law and medicine as well. 
that that terminology anyway. But what people tend to mean by it is a kind of vague concept now. And actually, Socratic questioning originally had a bit of a structure to it. There were specific techniques and, and questions that, that Socrates would use. Um, all modern therapy, or most modern therapy, I should say, places some emphasis on this kind of loose concept of Socratic questioning. There are a number of reasons for believing that it could be psychologically beneficial. I the, the form of it that I'm most interested in is uh, a version that was popular in the 1970s that has a slightly more explicit relationship um, with philosophy and was known as values clarification. And it became trendy in the 70s, then everyone forgot about it. And then about five or 10 years ago, it became trendy again, because it now is one of the integral techniques that we use in third wave cognitive behavioral therapy, particularly in the treatment of clinical depression. And so values clarification has in common with the Socratic approach that the question, so other Socratic questioning can be about anything really, um, but Socrates mainly asked people about the most important things in life and about the nature of virtue and the nature of the good. And values clarification has that same kind of focus. It helps people to clarify their core values. Um, so it, we use it a lot in SMRT. And I think, to come back to what we were saying earlier, in terms of research protocols and in terms of mentoring, one of the ways forward for developing a clearly defined practical kind of uh, uh, coaching approach based or mentoring approach based on stoicism, uh, I think would probably draw from the values clarification tradition in counselling and psychotherapy. Okay, uh, Ron, you're next. Okay, um, can you hear me? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay, so my question is actually a follow-up on the first two. It's the same uh, variety of question. You mentioned in your historic evolution of philosophy for yourself, at one point you were uh, intrigued with Plotinus and the Neoplatonists, and later it uh, led you to, to Stoicism. So my question is, uh, I'm, I'm sort of very sympathetic to Plato and the Neoplatonists. Um, how would you map on Stoicism to uh, Platonism or Neoplatonism. I, I think that a lot of people kind of uh, identify Plato with idealist and you know a little you know in the clouds kind of stuff. But um, as you mentioned with, with with Buddhism, you know you're you're able to map it on with uh, Stoicism to Buddhism. I was I was interesting. We've all, and and like I say, two things already came up. You know. Stoicism in meditation and Stoicism in the Socratic method. Are there other, if you were doing a Venn diagram of, you know, overlapping of Stoicism and Platonism, what else uh, would, would you say would be, you know, in that center where they overlap? Thank you. To compare those two things would be like a, a doctoral thesis, right? So I'm going to just focus on one or two little aspects very briefly. Um, the short answer is, it seems to me, the the neo the neoplatonic tradition um, got pretty weird, as people sometimes phrase it. Um, got quite esoteric after Plotinus, but it also was influenced by Stoicism and drew upon Stoicism, and also shared some influences with Stoicism. Um, I mean, obviously, the main differences are the metaphysics and 
the the kind of emphasis on virtue ethics is probably one one of the main points of, of similarity. I mean, it's, it seems to be, I don't know a lot about Neoplatonism. It's been a while since I've studied Plotinus. But it, my impression is that the, it's the, in the domain of ethics, they have more in common with the Stoics. And in, in metaphysics, this other worldly emphasis that you get in Neoplatonism and, and then in the Gnostics is quite antagonistic to Stoicism, that the Stoics wanted, were, were kind of a little bit more like the Buddhists, or some Buddhists anyway, in that respect, that they wanted a more of a worldly and down-to-earth philosophy, whereas the, the Neoplatonists seem to me to have, have wanted, in a sense, quite another worldly um, and, and, in a sense, more mystical philosophy. So I, that seems to me to be uh, the difference. In terms of the relationship with Plato, that would take a long time to discuss as well. It seems to me the Stoic, that Stoicism originated in a sense out of a critique of Plato, including of the theory of forms, certain aspects of his political views as well. In Plato, particularly the earlier dialogues, we have an account of Socrates, also in Xenophon and other ancient authors. I think the Stoics want to get back to the original Socrates and they think that Plato took him in the wrong direction by introducing kind of Pythagorean sort of inflected metaphysical views and putting them into Socrates' mouth. By the way, Aristotle says that Plato invented the theory of forms, i.e. it didn't come from Socrates. And I think that, that seems pretty clear to me. So there's, in Plato, uh, we have like you know an account of Socrates that would be more relevant to the Stoics and then the the later Platonic dialogues and in, in parts of the Republic and stuff we have this stuff that the Stoics probably thought was garbage or that they you know that they thought was going in totally the wrong direction. Yeah in fact uh, I've been rereading re recently uh, Xenophon's Memorabilia and the, the the picture of Socrates you get uh, from that book is very different from the platonic one and you're right there's absolutely no mention of anything like the, the, the theory of ideas or anything like that now of course one could say well that's might be because Xenophon wasn't interested but I don't think so I get a I really got a very different feeling uh, about the two Socrates uh, from from the two different sets of readings so okay we're gonna go next to Xin Shi for the next question hi uh... So my question is uh, uh, that when I uh, I read that Marcus Aurelius, uh, although he he was a Stoic, he had a lot of training in uh, in Stoicism, and if you read the meditation, you get the sense that he really aspired to be a, a fair, benevolent monarchy. But uh, but I also read that in a policy level. He didn't actually uh, introduce any significant uh, reform, and uh, so it's very difficult to tell uh, his, uh, as an emperor, how much different he was comparing to his predecessor. Uh, so, uh, so is this some sort? Do you consider this as some sort of a deficiency in Stoicism, which is it doesn't give uh, immediately give uh, any sort of a political or uh, so, uh, social justice uh, will. It's just say uh, justice, but what is justice? It doesn't tell you directly. Yeah. Okay, thank you. That, 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 thank you. That's a recurring question. So, Don, what do you think? All right. First of all, I, I could talk about that all day as well. I'd take a PhD thesis <laughs> to answer it, right? And there's right. lots of different angles that we could adopt on it. And there's lots of ambiguities, and we'd have to kind of dredge through the historical account and, 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 and what the Stoics like. I mean, you, like, what the Stoics tell us about 
cortex and, and, and justice it requires some reconstruction and uh, the later views that you get in the middle stoics and in cicero are maybe not exactly what was in zeno's republic as well um what we know even about marcus aurelius's behavior as a, an emperor is i could talk a lot what we have is a bunch of fragments right and i could talk a lot about that but a lot of interpretation would be required i my personal view is that first of all it seems the impression that we get is that everybody knew marx aurelius was a stoic and contrary to what's sometimes said it seems to me in the the survive if we can trust the surviving histories which is another question he everyone knew he was a stoic and he was famous as a stoic and he was perceived as acting and no one ever says in any of the histories or any of the other literary sources, nobody ever calls him a hypocrite, right? Yeah. Some of the things that people say today about Marcus Aurelius are things that no one ever dreamt of saying at the time. And then there are criticisms made of him at the time that nobody would really bother to make now. But no one ever, like quite the contrary, like the picture that's painted of him is of somebody that everyone agreed behaved in a way that was completely consistent with his philosophical ideals. Now, in the meditations, he does actually say a whole bunch of things about politics, but they're kind of buried and scattered and stuff. There's a bit at the beginning where, weirdly, he says that his Aristotelian tutor introduced him to the Republican Stoics, like Cato and Thrasea, and uh, he... And then he said, and then he goes on to describe this kind of vision of a political ideal, which seems to be somehow related to these uh, figures in Roman history. So there's a really odd bit at the beginning of the Meditations, where you know this thing in Gladiator, where at the beginning, Marcus, a really Richard Harris says, "I want Rome to return to being a republic," and most people are like, "He never said that," you know, that's that's a completely made up. But but at the beginning of the Meditations, he does weirdly say something that sounds a bit like that. Like he says, I really admire Cato and Thrasea and these famous Republican Stoics. And then he goes on and talks about this um, political ideal of um, uh, the same law applying to everybody and, you know, freedom of speech and uh, uh, political freedom being the highest ideal of the state and stuff. And you think people gloss over that because it just sounds utopian. But he says it. And, you know, how is that consistent? Then there's another passage where he says the people which is also textually problematic he says um that you shouldn't wish to achieve plato's republic overnight which sounds like a really odd thing is you know you wonder if that's a scribal error and he meant to say zeno's republic um because it's a very strange thing for a stoic to say but he says uh, you shouldn't wish to achieve plato's republic overnight you should be satisfied if you succeed in doing it in small steps and stages now again what i find just from experience of talking to people like people who don't know that much about marcus or roman history will often just assume that the emperor uh, has this kind of could do anything he wants right and there's a case to be made for that but basically i don't agree um, for and, ve- and to put this as concisely as I can, he had a civil war, right? He faced a civil war and a number of other uprisings. He couldn't just do anything he wanted because there was a realistic chance he would just be assassinated or be overthrown if he did, right? So people say, well, couldn't he just 
overthrow the institution of slavery. No, obviously he couldn't, right? Because if he attempted to do that, there would be kickback against it. There would be a civil war, or, you know, like he would be assassinated or whatever. He can just do anything he wanted, as, even, even as emperor. So I bring that back to this passage that says, that seems to say he wants to achieve some kind of philosophical utopian ideal but he's also a realist about it and he would be satisfied if he manages to achieve it in small increments so what are the small increments that marcus enacted in his life well if we all like there are a number of books that review marcus's political uh, and legal actions and generally they're in the direct with some exceptions he there's a lot of things that he did to improve the rights of slaves and in particular to improve their opportunity for manumission or to uh, achieve citizenship and freedom. It also in the Roman histories, we consistently get this picture of Marcus um, doing things to protect the safety. For example, um, gladiators, he had fight with blunted weapons. Um, he recruited the gladiators into the army and in doing so gave them the opportunity to win citizenship and freedom. He says this really weird thing, and, the, and, and there are many weird things that he says, but in the meditations at one point, he says that somebody who captures Sarmatians, uh, the, one of the main tribes that the Romans were fighting, um, is has the mentality of a robber. And to me, this sounds very much like a, a, a stoic argument against the institution of slavery. Um, which we find presented in Dio Chrysostom um, in detail, but not really in any of the, the other the Stoic sources. We find kind of allusions to it, perhaps. And so he's saying someone who's capturing slaves and enslaving them is stealing them from nature. They have the mentality of a brigand or a, a robber. Um, so it seems another anomaly that I'd point out. So I'm just having to point to all these fragments yep. and mm -hmm. talk all day about them. Um, I find it striking that in the meditations, Marcus only refers to being a Roman citizen once or twice, right? Or Roman citizens. He says that as Antoninus, his city is Rome um, and he's a citizen, but as a human being, he's a citizen of the world. And the meditations is clearly not a manifesto for a Roman emperor as we would normally know it. It's a manifesto for ethical cosmopolitanism. And throughout it, there are many repeated references, which people always ignore, to the idea that other people, regardless of their race, are our, should be viewed as our kin on the basis of their shared possession of reason. He never says other Roman citizens, which is a striking thing for a Roman emperor to say. He says that if they possess reason why, and the capacity for virtue, then you should view them as fellow citizens of the world community. And it becomes more striking when you remember that he's writing that on the frontier. Like when right. he looks over the river and he can see a bunch of quadi marcomani and Sarmatians waving at him and throwing spears at him or whatever. <laughs> like, and he's thinking, these are fellow citizens. Uh, of the world community. So again, it, it, the meditations is we read in abstract. When we put it back in its historical context, I think the, the connotation, the radical connotations of some of the things he's saying in that book 
um, become much more striking. You look at those passages that he says about cosmopolitanism and imagine that he's writing them surrounded by Sarmatians and Quadi and so on and on the frontier in the middle of a war. You think about the moral and political implications of that. They're, they're really quite... Um, remarkable. And then you can have a debate about Marcus's political actions in, in relation to these peoples. That would be a long and complicated discussion, but the abbre- I know this and it would be controversial, like, but the abbreviated version of it I would give is that we can see in the Roman histories recurring, a recurring theme is that Marcus try, seems to be trying to avoid enslaving captured enemy tribesmen, and instead he's offering to resettle them within the Roman Empire. Right, which is a very striking thing, because it, again, it's a different kind of... But yeah, I think you're right that, that, that it's very strange uh, that so many people seem to think that a Roman emperor was essentially a god with unlimited powers of restructuring reality yeah, as crazy. he liked. It's just like, well, that's crazy. Um, they, they have... How, like, what, something like a quarter of them, or maybe it's more than that, were assassinated. Right, yeah, exactly. And um, they knew it. It's not like, by that time, they knew that that was a, a likely cause of, of death, if, depending on, on what their actions were going to be. So it's like, you know, come on. All right, uh, Don, this, this was great. We got way past the hour, but that's okay. Um, thank you so much for, for uh, being with us today. Um, we, we enjoyed the conversation. I think people, as usual, learn from you, have a lot from, learn from you, and maybe we'll do it again sometime in the future. Th- thank you. Well, thanks to everybody, and in particular to you, Massimo, for having me along as your guest. It's been a pleasure as always. All right. And so just as a reminder, then the next episode of the Store Nova Conversations is going to be July 9th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, the topic is going to be Stoic Comedy, anyone? And my guest is going to be Australian comedian Michael Connell, who Weirdly enough, specializes on, in stoicism for, for his comedy. Until then, stay safe, and I'll see you soon. Bye-bye.